Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History. On the 19th of August 1991, 30 years ago, there was an attempted coup in the Soviet Union. Mikhail Gorbachev was temporarily imprisoned as hardliners sought to re-establish the dominance of authoritarian rule in the Soviet Union and its satellites. The coup failed after three days, and it eventually led to collapse of communism, disintegration of the Soviet Union. Gorbachev resigned as first secretary of the Communist Party on the 24th of August. On the 29th, the Supreme Soviet suspended all activities of the Communist Party. Days later, Soviet states declared independence. Estonia, Latvia, Ukraine, Belarus, Moldova, Azerbaijan, Kyrgyzstan, and Uzbekistan. And that, I think we can all agree, has got some fairly, fairly important, enduring consequences for all of us today. That is a story that has not yet come to an end. And to talk about that collapse of Soviet Union, I've got the very brilliant Peter Kanesh. He's a historian. He specialises in Russian, Eastern European history and politics. As you'll hear in this episode, I didn't want this to be the focus, but he was born in Hungary. And he is a Holocaust survivor. He survived as a child. And so we do, at the end, talk about his experiences. So he's someone who has lived through extraordinarily traumatic history himself. He's emeritus professor at the University of California. So I talked to him over on the West Coast. And he gave me such an interesting and thoughtful take on the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago this month. If you wish to deepen Deepen your engagement in history. And I can understand why you'd want to do that. Go to historyhit.tv. You don't have to believe your eyes. Historyhit.tv. You get 30 days free now if you go and check it out. It's a history channel, folks, where there are hundreds of history documentaries for history fans, watched by tens of thousands of people. It's great fun with a small subscription to keep the whole thing going. And it means we can make real history shows for real history fans. Please go and check it out. Historyhit.tv. You get 30 days free if you sign up now. But in the meantime, everyone, here is Peter Kanesh talking about the fall of the Soviet Union. Enjoy. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for asking me. Okay, this is a big question. Did the Soviet Union collapse under its own internal contradictions because of economic forces, commodity prices, things like that? Or was it external pressure and resistance that led to its collapse? Well, we can say with some assurance that uh, the Soviet Union collapsed not because of uh, a great uprising, because the people were uh, dissatisfied with what they had and then rebelled and then overthrew the regime which uh, oppressed them. But uh, actually, uh, Lenin formulated uh, that what you need for a revolution is not so much that lower classes cannot tolerate their oppression, but those who are in position of control cannot do it any longer. And so I always thought that the crucial moment of the collapse of the Soviet Union was when uh, Karbachev at one point said to Shevardnadze, which means it is impossible to live like that. So my explanation of the collapse of the Soviet Union is that those who were in control did not believe 
in the justice of the regime, which, which made it possible for them to oppress. That is, uh, Gorbachev, who is a crucial figure, did not believe in the justice of the cause any longer. What he wanted to create was what was called at the time socialism with the human face. And that turned out to be utopia. What I'm saying is that the regime disintegrated rather than brought down by a popular uprising. And that I think it's easy to demonstrate. Now, what were the cause of the ultimate disintegration? Uh, I suppose is the impossibility of reforming the economy and maintaining the existing system, the nationality question, which pulled the country in different directions, and ultimately the disintegration of institutions, above all, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So, I mean, this was a, a process which ultimately failed. Gorbachev, to me, is a, is a very attractive character in as much as he wanted to bring together a democratic form of socialism. And this is, to me, an attractive proposition. It's too bad that it was not possible. And it is, as far as I can see, still not possible. But it is an attractive utopia, socialism with a human face. In this respect, uh, his comrades were the Hungarian Imre Noy, 1956, Dubček of 1968, and Gorbachev. These are the three people who wanted to maintain socialism as they saw it, a system which can be reconciled with a democracy, and that did not work. What's so interesting hearing you say that is you think about the contemporary world in which you have all sorts of authoritarians clinging to power against seemingly extraordinary odds, the Assad family in Syria, Belarusia today. They uh, believe in the justice of their cause. That's right, North Korea. So that's the key dip. That's obviously China. And it's allowed them to weather far more apparent obstacles and headwinds than Gorbachev faced in the late 80s and early 90s. Yes. You have to believe in the justice of your cause to be successful as an oppressor. Now, people have no trouble convincing themselves of all sorts of nonsense, but uh, uh, decent people cannot do it, and they fail. Lukashenko is not decent. But then Gorbachev, what quirk of fate allowed someone who lacked a sense of the legitimacy of their own cause to reach the very apogee of the Soviet empire in the, in the late 80s. What does that mean? Was that just luck? Or was it a product of a wider malaise, a wider loss of confidence? Yes, indeed. There was increasing recognition that changes will be necessary. And uh, Chernyenka, who preceded Gorbachev, was clearly incapable. And uh, Andropov, who preceded Chernyenko, recognized the necessity of changes and uh, put Gorbachev forward and supported him. Now, how important personalities are in uh, how events turn up, it's practically impossible to say. It is impossible to disintegrate. How significant Gorbachev was, I don't know. But I think we can say with such assurance that that regime, as it lasted, could not go on any longer. The economy was in shambles. You could not maintain an economy which is cut off from the world, where uh, there is a planned economy in, in which prices don't mean anything, where uh, economic inefficiency is non-existent, 
where factories are not closed down, which are inefficient because you cannot have uh, unemployment, this just could not continue in the end of the 20th century. Something got to give. And so there was a recognition on the part that you need changes, but how far those changes can go. Now, there was a recognition the changes will be painful. They cannot be changes without suffering. That is, uh, closing down factories will be harmful. Stopping uh, support of prices will create uh, misery for a large segment of the population. And indeed, this is what happened in the, in the Yeltsin era, where economic reforms, radical economic reforms were introduced. And it created an extraordinary suffering. The, the 1990s in Russia were a period of a dreadful decade when life expectancy fell, where alcoholism reached remarkable proportions, where people lived in misery. And this was a high cost. Now, it always interested me how come the Chinese managed to avoid all that. Why is that the China succeeded when Russia did not succeed? The Chinese did succeed. I mean, they did get rid of a Marxist economy. Really, China is not a communist system in any meaningful way. China is an autocratic regime where uh, free enterprise flourishes, where there are billionaires. Uh, I understand there are as many billionaires in China as there are in the, the United States. Now, how come that the Chinese managed to do it and the Russians did not? Here I am on, on weak soil. The Chinese like to work. The Russians didn't like to work. The Russians were infected by European liberalism. Europe was too close. That is when Gorbachev said to Jevernadze, it is impossible to live like that. It was because basically it was a European. The Chinese have a different tradition. They have a different history. And that history matters. Russian history mattered and Chinese history mattered. So you could do things in China which you could not do in Russia. And so China flourishes and the Russians are not doing very well by any standard of measurement. I have hope that uh, economic, further economic reforms will be introduced in Russia. Corruption will be reduced. There will be a development of a middle class which will demand to be treated as normal human beings should be treated. I have hopes, but hopes for the, not for the very near future. For the very near future, I don't have much hope. Coming back to, you mentioned infected by European liberalism. So was that an element? The Americans, the Americans like, say, George Bush, H.W. Bush, won the Cold War because the Soviet Union collapsed. What were the factors from outside Russia? Was it the images of McDonald's and Levi's and pop music and people having fun and sort of apparent freedoms of the West? Was that a, an important factor in this Soviet collapse? I do think so. I do think so that as long as Russia could live as a separate entity, as it could in the 1920s and the 1930s, but the outside world could be shut out. The regime had a degree of stability and legitimacy, which in the modern world, and of course, especially today, but even in the 1980s and 1990s, Russia could not be cut off from the rest of the world, and that mattered. It's not what Reagan or Bush did or did not do which really mattered. It's the very existence 
of a liberal outside world, which undermined people's faith in themselves, what they were doing. And Gorbachev talked about our common European home. Now, uh, you cannot imagine a Chinese leader talk about our common European home. And that mattered. That is, the West mattered, not because of what it said, but for what it was. So, no, uh, Reagan did not bring down the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union collapsed because it was based on principles which at the end of the 20th century were inappropriate for the needs of the moment. Times change. Something which you could do in the 1920s, you could not do in the 1990s. Another exogenous factor is, I guess, Eastern Europe, which was sort of part of this Soviet empire, but at slightly more arm's reach than places like Ukraine and Georgia. It's interesting to me that the German collapse at the end of the First World War was presaged by a collapse of its allies in South and East Europe. Is that important as well in 1991? Is this important that Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary would have required military repression to keep them in that Eastern Bloc? Yes. Yes. But again, uh, the paradox of Gorbachev, who goes to East Berlin, and uh, he uh, stands for liberalism against the Ulbricht regime. And indeed, in 1956, for example, Khrushchev's reforms made the Hungarian Revolution of 56 possible, in the sense that, well, if Khrushchev can denounce Stalin, then so can we. Times change. And what is appropriate in one historical moment is not appropriate in another. But we're talking about the significance of Eastern Europe. Yes, uh, Eastern Europe required investment, military investment, which the Soviet Union could barely afford. And indeed, what was going on in Poland and what was going on in Hungary demonstrated the disintegration of the regime. Interestingly, less in East Germany. (laughs) and to say nothing about Romania. But Poland first and then Hungary second demonstrated to the disintegration of the bloc and the pull of the West. And well, as I say, what it comes down to is the ideology of combining socialism with democracy, socialism with a human face, as they called it. And it is our loss that this turned out to be impossible. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. 
Hi there, everyone. I want to tell you about a podcast that I think you'll like. It's called Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. It's narrated by my good friend and host of American History hit, Don Wildman. On Mysteries at the Museum, Don travels across the US to find objects that tell shocking stories of American history. You'll hear about the portrait linked to the first bank robbery in American history and about the failed invention from World War II that became one of the most popular toys for kids. Uncover the secrets behind these incredible objects and learn about the history of war, science, crime, and everything in between. You're going to love this podcast all about the remarkable objects in our treasure houses that are museums. Please go and check it out. Mysteries at the Museum from Travel Channel. Were there voices within the Soviet hierarchy who said, yes, this has a military solution. We can reimpose order on our satellite states in Eastern Europe. Well, I mean, this is uh, indeed the 30th anniversary of that the historical moment, the so-called uh, Butch, uh, August 19, 1991, when, um, in effect, those people who were devoted to the old regime and opposed to what Gorbachev stood for, wanted to return to the old, which would have necessitated the use of military force. And that was not possible. The regime was disintegrating. The coup was not a serious danger. The people who organized that coup had no force behind them. But also there was no force behind Gorbachev or Yeltsin. What we see is disintegration. It's not that there were strong forces against one another. It's not that uh, Gorbachev stood for something and he was opposed by uh, a conservative cabal. The institutions were falling apart. The Communist Party, there were debates within the party. Now, you cannot have a Communist Party when there are internal disagreements. I mean, that's not a Communist Party any longer. So what I'm saying is that we must look at it ultimately as this integration rather than a revolution. Not that the Soviet people rebelled against the regime and overthrew it and brought in something which they deeply desired. That's not the way things go. What we see is disintegration, disintegration, disintegration. Well, in this respect, I think 1917 is very similar. 1917, it's not that there was a strong communist party which overthrew first the Tsarist regime and then the liberal regime of Kerensky, everything just fell apart. Is the slightly disturbing lesson of the Soviet Union in 1991 for the Chinese, for the North Koreans, for the Syrians, is the disturbing lesson is that as long as you can hold a governing coalition together, as long as you can maintain your morale as an elite, you can stave off that disintegration? Depends on the moment, depends on the circumstances. And well, as you say, uh, Syria and Belarus and North Korea are prime examples. But Cuba is falling apart. There is no equivalent of Lukashenko in Cuba. And so, uh, you know, the Cubans now have cell phones and they listen to what was going on in the rest of the world. And that's not going to work in the long run. Speaking of the morale of the ruling class or the ruling cadre, I'm reminded, was it Louis Philippe in 1848? Says, the problem with republics is they can shoot people. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, shooting is, uh, is very important for the stability of the regime. Yes, the willingness to do it. Right. And he didn't have the willingness to do it. Uh, and You have to believe. You see, we have trouble accepting that those wicked people actually believe in the justice of their cause. It seems to us that uh, they are just hypocrites. They really managed to convince themselves. Lukashenko believes that what he's doing is good. And Assad believes that he is holding together a regime, and that's good. How can people do that? How can normal people believe that what they are doing is good? But they do. There are very few hypocrites. And with the Soviet Union, you see the satellite states in Eastern Europe break away. You also see component parts of the Soviet Union, of the original czarist empire of Russia, break away. What determined how far and how fast that breakup would go? Why didn't other parts of the former Soviet Union break away? I think that as long as there is a strong central power, nationalism of the subject people does not flourish. But once there is a sense among the Estonians and Lithuanians and Georgians and Armenians that the central power is disintegrating, then nationalism suddenly acquires great strength and great force. This is again what happened in 1917. The regime collapsed, and so uh, the separate parts of Imperial Russia suddenly recognized that we are Armenians, we are Georgians, and we are Estonians and Latvians and so on and so forth. And this happened again in 1988, 1989. And after all, that's the first shooting, you may remember, took place in Georgia and then in Lithuania. And then all was the result that the center is not functioning. There is no central power. And suddenly people became Georgians and suddenly they became Armenians and suddenly they became what have you, uh, Romanians in Moldova. And the previous notion that we have succeeded in developing uh, Soviet patriotism, and I am a nationalist Soviet, suddenly fell apart. Then people realized that, well, actually, I'm Georgian. Again, disintegration. Everything follows from disintegration. The economy, the institutions, the nationalities, it seems to me that these are the three relevant factors. The economy, institutions, primarily the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the Komsomol, and then the nationalities. And ultimately, we have seen the result. I mean, we are now in a different situation. Tell me about the importance of Afghanistan in this collapse. Was Afghanistan primarily an issue of confidence? in those institutions, again, the morale of the ruling cadre, or was there a direct economic and military impact that made the Soviet project unsustainable? Well, I mean, it's a peculiar situation because the Soviets did not uh, impose Najibullah on Afghanistan. However, the Soviets supported Najibullah, and when uh, the Taliban was about to overthrow their regime, they did not want to create a precedent in which a Soviet time regime can be overthrown. And so they militarily invested in maintaining Najibullah's regime, in which they failed. And this is a particular moment, we should remember the American support for the Taliban, because from the American point of view, getting rid of the Soviet supported Afghan was a good thing. Now, it turned out to be it was a mistake. However, that takes us in a different direction in our conversation about American uh, role in Afghanistan. 
But yes, of course, that was a blow. And of course, Chernobyl was a blow. And really, returning from Afghanistan was the first really major military setback for the Soviet Union in the course of its existence. They had not suffered another comparable reverse where they had to give up the Soviet, supported the Soviet-style regime as they did in Afghanistan in 88. And it was a blow. It was a blow to the prestige of the Soviet Union, the prestige of the Red Army. And Chernobyl was also a blow. But these are all components of this general disintegration when nothing works. You introduce uh, sensible reforms, such as limiting the sale of the alcohol, but then it turns out that much of the finances of the Soviet Union were based on the sale of alcohol. (laughs) So nothing is going the way it should. Everything is falling apart. We should just quickly dwell on the alcohol. Whenever I'm in Russia today, I get told by Russians, they say, you people in the West, you think it's all high politics and you think it was the space race and you think it was Afghanistan and you know cruise missiles. But actually, it's because Gorbachev tried to restrict alcohol. And whenever a Russian regime restricts alcohol, it falls almost instantly. <laughs> well, actually, uh, the, the Tsarist regime during the war, the First World War, also introduced. Uh, exactly. And then that created an enormous hole in the Tsarist budget. So you have to be careful about uh, what. By the way, today, we tend to overestimate the extent of Russian alcoholism. It has declined, believe it or not. Well, certainly uh, my entirely unscientific and anecdotal experience is that uh, Russian alcoholism is alive, or D. Snow's alcoholism while in Russia is alive and well. But yes, so that was an error. Gorbachev, what he tried to restrict alcohol sales. Yes, again, you know, it's so Gorbachevian that is that you root for the guy. I mean, it's, it's a good idea to make them uh, suffer less from alcoholism, but then it turns out to be a utopia. I find Gorbachev a very winning character, a tragic figure who, to this day, I just read about him when he was talking that he still believes in the combination of democracy and uh, by socialism, which he means a greater degree of social equality and uh, a functioning economy. So he has not repudiated anything. That's not the way it goes. Now, after 30 years, historians can start to form judgments on these. What did the collapse of the Soviet Union mean for the world? <laughs> well... Everything is constantly changing. I mean, now we have an enormously powerful China, which is doing very well. They succeeded in creating an economic system which is functioning. And uh, the Chinese work, I mean, the Chinese, what they have accomplished, I believe, is really the great story of our age. The change that occurred in China as far as the life expectancy, as far as female equality, as far as public health, literacy concern is just something extraordinary. I mean, I would have trouble thinking an example in world history, but such a transformation took place in such a short time. Now, is the Chinese regime attractive? No, it's not. But that's another issue. And I wish that my Russians would have achieved something similar, but they failed. Before we go, can I ask about your experience? Because you're a Holocaust survivor. Yes, those were exciting days. Everybody is a survivor because those who are not survivors are not here to tell their story. Of course. 
So there is a, a paradox is built in. Everybody's a survivor. How old were you when the war came to an end in 1945? And uh, in 1944, well, I was seven years old, and uh, I remember walking in front of the Hungarian Nazis with my arms raised. One of my favorite memories. And do you remember being liberated or what freedom felt like? Oh, yes. This was on January 17, 1945, when I saw my first Russian soldier, and I loved them. And to this day, in spite of all my studies, I have a warm spot in my heart for Russians. Well, how does your family fare? My father was uh, taken the very first day when the Germans occupied the country. It was on March 19, 1944. My father was taken on the 20th of March, and that was the last time I saw him. And I know what happened to him. Uh, he was taken to Auschwitz with the first group, survived Auschwitz, marched ultimately to Buchenwald, and uh, he was alive on the 1st of April, and Buchenwald was liberated by the American army on the 10th of April. And other relatives? Nobody survives on my father's side of the family. My mother survived. I had scarlet fever, and for a while I was a red piece of paper was put on our door, and the Hungarian Nazis didn't want to come in and be infected. I really had scarlet fever. It was not a pretense. By the way, all described lovingly in a little autobiography which I wrote, which is called Varieties of Fear. How has that childhood experience affected you, do you think? Were you able to put that trauma behind you, or has it been with you all your life? Oh, no, 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 no. I, well, of course, we don't know what made us what we are. And what I can say is that there are innumerable number of circumstances which creates us with what we are and how significant my particular experience in 1944 in how I was formed, I cannot say. I don't want to overestimate it. I don't like to think of myself that I am the product of the Holocaust. It's not my life. But of course, it's part of my life and so much else. Being in England is also part of my life. That was also an experience which formed me. Well, thank you for sharing those stories, Peter. Thank you very much indeed. I've taken so much of your time. I really appreciate that. Not at all. I, uh, you may have noticed I like to talk. Well, we're very glad to have you talk. <laughs> all right. So uh, thank you very much indeed. Of course. I think we have the history on our shoulders. All this tradition of ours, our school history, our songs, this part of the history of our country, all were gone and finished. Thanks, folks, for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. As I say all the time, I love doing these podcasts. They are the best thing I do professionally. I feel very lucky to have you listening to them. If you fancied giving them a rating review, obviously the best rating review possible would be ideal. It makes a big difference to us. I know it's a pain, but we'd really, really be grateful. And if you want to listen to the other podcasts in our ever-increasing stable, don't forget we've got Susanna Lipscomb with Not Just the Tudors. That's flying high in the charts. We've got our medieval podcast, Gone Medieval, with the brilliant Matt Lewis and Kat Jarman. We've got The Ancients with our very own Tristan Hughes. And we've got Warfare as well, dealing with all things military. Please go and check those out wherever you get your pods. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds 
of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.